continue our B90 journey, reading the Bible in 90 days. And at this point, as with each of the Sundays, I'm charged with somehow tying together pages and pages and pages of scripture that you've read all week long and uh, or listened to for hours and tying together centuries of stuff. You know, the Bible has a remarkable capacity for covering 400 years in a sentence or something like that. And so remember that in our challenge to read the entire Bible in 90 days, that our particular goal is to uh, get the big picture and don't get too hung up on the details right now. Uh, You hang around with me long enough, you'll know that I can talk with you for two hours about the details. But what we wanna do right now is to grasp the overview and to really get to know our Lord who authored this book and used it principally as a way to communicate with us the Lord's very heart and mind, what we call the Word with a capital W. So by this time in our reading of the Bible in 90 days, many of us have already read something that sounds a lot like Pulp Fiction. Wow. So much drama, so much violence, so much moral decay, so many uh, intrigues, political and otherwise, so many weird and mysterious religions that get reintroduced into the life of the people of God. The promised land was a short-lived time of glory, unfortunately, and now they have fallen back into the old ways. But not just the old ways, they've adopted the ways of their neighbors. And it all seems to hinge on leadership. When they have godly leaders, It goes well for them, and when they have ungodly leaders, it goes poorly for them. And what we discovered in our reading this week and and, uh, what we will see continued in the coming week is the outcome when a godly man is in charge of the nation and yet he's still a little bit like they used to be. That's David. So he's a, God, he's a guy with a man after God's own, he's a man that God called a man after God's own heart, right? And the moment that was so critical in David's life and his relationship with God, the one that caused God to bless him and to pronounce that the nation would continue and that the reign of David would continue into the future was that moment when David said, you know, God, you should have a house. We should build a place for you to be and a place where you can sit on your throne. Now, on the surface, it doesn't sound very interesting or doesn't sound like it's that big a deal that warranted God's really positive response. But what what David recognized was that his people over generations up to his arrival as their king, what they had done was they'd started worshiping the box instead of the God who sits on the box. Now, I've never used visual aids, but this would be a great time for one. If you can imagine the Ark of the Covenant is a box and on it is a gold lid and the seat back is the extended wings of the cherubim. And and so that area above 
the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the Holy of Holies, and it is, in effect, the throne that God sits on. And while God is unseen and all-powerful, God is there. The Holy of Holies, the presence of God is there in front of the cherubim wings. And so what I'm saying is, is that David announces that there needs to be a place for God to dwell because he recognizes that it is God who sits on that throne that we worship. But they've fallen into the habit of worshiping the box. They've fallen into the habit of worshiping the serpent that Moses put on a stick and raised above them. And they said, turn to this and God will relieve you of your suffering. And, and you're going to read in the, in the Bible here in the next day or two that one of the kings after David, a good king, he destroyed the serpent that Moses made because the people worshiped it. The people have fallen into the habits of worshiping objects instead of what they represent. And they've assigned human flesh to the objects. And so they have some pretty strange behaviors. Some are more offensive to God than others, and I think God is offended by all of them, so don't get that wrong. But, but you know, every time you hear about Baal or Baal, keep in mind that this is a form of Satan, and God is particularly determined to stamp out worship of Baal. God doesn't like Astarte or the one that they worship with the Asherah poles, which is a real... He condemns it because it's about worshiping the flesh, basically, and things of the flesh. So there are certain things you read about in the Bible that are particularly frustrating to God, and he's very, very harsh with them when it comes to that. And in particular, harsh with the leaders who don't deal with the things in the high places. In other words, those idols to the false gods, or worse, to Satan, the enemy. So there's this ongoing drama that you're reading about in the Kings and the Chronicles, and some of it seems repetitive and redundant. And I got news for you. As you read forward, you're going to see in the prophets, you're going to go back to those same incidents, but from a different point of view, because now you're going to hear what the prophets were telling them when they were going through all these foolish and ridiculous things. And the prophets are the voice of God forecasting their destruction because they will not relent from their idol worship and their lack of concern for their fellow man. And then there's David. David, who is, is an enigma to anyone who reads scripture because here is a guy whose behavior is downright criminal at times. The story about David and Bathsheba is one that, well, even in this culture, we would find it offensive if we really knew the details and thought them through. So how is it that someone can so spectacularly fail as David has and still get a blessing and be a man after God's own heart? How does that even happen? And for that matter, how is it that we are reading about things that we find so absolutely unbelievable that we're sort of saying, gosh, no wonder we didn't read this. <laughs> it's disgusting. You know, we're reading, about, we're reading about people sacrificing their own children 
We're reading about people with 800 wives and 600 concubines. We're reading about people with, with murderous spirits who have no hesitation whatsoever about slaying their enemies, their enemies' children, their enemies' dogs, cats, hamsters, whatever. And it's all so offensive to us. This, this people who is part of a covenant that God made with Moses and for the sake of that covenant, God continues to invest in them even though under poor leadership, they spit in God's eye. And we find all of that so offensive. And, and, and have you recognized that perhaps one of the reasons it's so offensive to you is because you live under the new covenant? That maybe the reason it's so offensive to you is because you have benefited from society that's been influenced and impacted by the new covenant through Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. This is one of the things you have to explore as you move forward in this journey. But what is it about David that makes him okay and even so much so that the people of Israel to this day want to see a return to the kingdom glory that once existed under David? Why? Well, David is a pivotal character in your reading. Up to David, you're seeing an old paradigm under the old covenant that's being lived out by people who had to be told about everything from what to do about toenail fungus to national repentance, right? It was all in their instructions from Moses. That's how ignorant they were. They were being trained to live an entirely new way in a new paradigm that had never been conceived of before and without strong leadership and without a determination to see it through, they failed. Remember, I told you a couple of weeks ago that the first time the Jubilee year came around and they chose to ignore it, they were in trouble. And they never did, as far as the Bible says, follow the covenant requirement of a year of Jubilee. And now we see everything God told them would happen, happening because of their failure to keep the covenant. And it starts with strong leadership. Now along comes David who sees God as a living God who's worthy of worship and praise in and of himself and it has nothing to do with the box. Maybe that's the thing that he had to learn the hard way when little poor little Uzzah tried to help keep the box from falling off the ox cart and it killed him. Is that, that David had to realize that he was treating it like a box too. And he had to go back and rethink the whole thing and figure out that this is not about stuff. It's about a relationship with the living God, the same God who said I am to Moses and says I am to David and says I am to you today is the same yesterday, today and always. And this, this is what David figured out and this was to his credit, but he was still reckless. And foolish. So let's take a look at the passage for today. It comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. 
And so David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord, the king, all of my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now David, uh, now, now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand drawn, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, cloth, uh, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? Is it, it is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand... O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so David messed up. I call the message Gideon's temptation and David's sin because Gideon was tempted to do the same thing, you remember, in his own way. When he was challenged to fight for the people in the name of God, he was numbering things and he was counting himself at a loss and God comforted him and said, doesn't matter how many you have. The victory belongs to me. The battle belongs to the Lord. But David forgot that. David was starting to get a little proud, maybe a little arrogant, and David 
even at the, against the advice of his advisor, Joab, went ahead and took a census, wanted to know just how big his army was, wanted to, wanted to find out what he had going for him. This was, in fact, the seeds of the civil war that will break out shortly after his son Solomon's reign when he sees that Judah outnumbers Israel. So God, again, warned them against that. You remember in that tedious reading of all the rules and regulations that you did a couple of weeks ago, God said, don't ever get arrogant and count heads. He told them not to do that, and he did it anyway, so God punished him. And I guess you could say as to his credit that David accepted God's punishment instead of human punishment, but it still comes down to not putting God in the right perspective. And so what we're going to see as we read through these continuing uh, ups and downs of the people of Israel is that it's making a statement about God's unchanging nature and the fact that the people are discontented with that. They, they decide they need a king because everybody else around's got a king. They decide that they need objects, objects to worship instead of an invisible and all-glorious God because everybody else has got objects to worship, right? They decide that they need 800 wives and 600 concubines. What the heck is that about, right? And so on and on it goes. By the way, if you want to know what I think about some of these things and what explanation I might have for you, um, I give very straightforward answers in the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group because, you know, when you're standing up here in front of people of all different ages and things, there's just certain things I'm not going to talk about. But rest assured that I understand what a stumbling block some of these things can be for you as you study. And so I try to help you with that in the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group. But here's the thing. Gideon got his victory because he trusted God and humbled himself. David was punished because he didn't trust God and he elevated himself. And the only thing David has going for him every time he messes up is that as soon as he realizes his mistake, he's repentant. But you think, well, how much can one God take, right? Well, that's, that's because God has an eternal perspective, and as God is looking at this, we're reading it in a linear fashion in time and in space. God is looking at it from outside of space and time. And God looks at David as the critical transition point from the old covenant to the new. God forecasts the new covenant when he tells David that it's about a relationship. And now that you understand that, you're your family tree is going to bring that relationship to life. A little place called Bethlehem where David is from in a future that involves Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And so God forecasts that through David and he gives a taste of what it will be like through Solomon. Because Solomon, in, uh, to, credit, to, to his credit, Solomon when he realized the immense task that he was about to undertake, prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him. Well, in my opinion, and I think this is supported in scripture, that what, what Solomon got was actually a big dose of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's in 
Solomon a, a sort of foretaste of what spirit-filled people will be like. And you begin to recognize that we're transitioning from people who are largely experiencing God on an ad hoc basis. And only when there's a crisis or a critical developmental moment, they're moving from that. And then with Solomon, you get a little bit of an example of it to a constant relationship with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to see that forecast in Solomon. And then as they move forward yet more, you even see images of God's plan, like in Elisha, for example. Now, some of you may have read this on my Facebook post, but Elisha is a prophet of God who had extraordinary wisdom, filled with the Spirit, who uh, healed lepers, raised the dead. He turned poison soup into tasty stew, sort of like changing water into wine. He found somebody's lost hatchet by pointing right to the place in the water where it would be and then having them cast a net, so to speak, into the water there and have a miraculous catch. He raises the dead. He, uh, he shows his disciples the unseen realm of God, the chariots of God, sort of like Jesus showing the disciples the presence of God and the Mount of Transfiguration. Elisha appears in the story as an image of the coming king. You see that? And so it turns out the old saying is true. The Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. And so all of this is happening as you're reading through your entire Bible in 90 days. And the question you have to ask yourself as you read all of this is, how do I apply what I'm reading in here that's just sort of a historical narrative to my spiritual journey? Well, you ever find yourself worshiping things? Listen, I've been a pastor a long time and I've gone to church all my life and I just found out last week I'm another year older. And here's what I know. People worship things all the time in churches. You know, I had a church one time where they had these tablecloths that a lady had donated a long, long time ago that nobody was permitted to put in the washing machine because even though it had washing instructions in it on the label, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. Those were supposed to last forever and we weren't going to wear them out. We worship tablecloths, right? We... We've seen churches over the years where they worship people's gifts, you know, pictures and furnishings with brass plaques on them. We've, we've been in churches where people worship plastic tables and chairs because we don't want to buy anymore. These should last forever. You know, my way of thinking is, is that what would really be awesome is if we had to replace the doors to the church and the chairs and the pews and things on a regular basis because we were using them so much we wore them out. See, that, that to me seems like worshiping God because you just can't help it. But, but many people who go to church worship tradition. They worship one songbook, but not another. They worship one kind of instruments or another. They worship one version of the Bible or another. They worship stuff. They turn the presence of God into a box. 
They turned the Holy of Holies into a box full of old junk. And they worshiped that. Does it still happen to this day? You know it. You can bet your life on it. Do you worship Mother's Day? How many Mother's Day, I'm really stepping on toes here. How many Mother's Day traditions are going to be honored across America today because there would be hell to pay if you didn't? <laughs> right? What's the spirit of the thing? I don't know, but what I do know is, is that if you don't go to somebody's house for a certain type of gathering, you, you may as well have committed a felony, right? Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, traditions. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with traditions, but we all have this capacity to do what Israel did, which is to fall into the trap and the habit of worshiping things and objectifying God. And what we see as we move forward in time through the Bible is that God desires a relationship with you, a personal relationship with you. And God likes it so much that God, through Jesus Christ, broke out of the house that was built to contain his spirit. The temple curtain tore when Jesus breathed his last and God was let out of the box so that we could all experience God's presence one on one and we could all be filled with God's spirit. That's the point. That's what all of this is leading to. So consider these stories and then the practical implications for your life as you go from here. Let us pray. Father, take now the words of your servant and burn into your hearts, the hearts of your people, that which is entirely from you. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.